0: Hello, and welcome to this Wealth Track podcast. I'm Consuelo Mack. I'm always on the lookout for the next generation of potential great investors. I'm especially interested because no matter what our age, we are all essentially long-term investors, depending upon our portfolios well into our 80s and possibly 90s. So who is investing and learning beside the great investors of today? We have an exclusive interview with Bill Miller IV. You heard that right. Bill IV, or just IV as he is known at Miller Value Partners, is the son of Bill Miller III, one of the top value managers of the baby boom generation and the only mutual fund manager to beat the market 15 years in a row. Bill Miller IV is a portfolio manager on the Miller Value Partners Income Strategy, which he has worked on for a decade, and is co-portfolio manager of the Miller Income Mutual Fund, which they launched in 2014. It recently ranked in the top 1% of its Morningstar category, with 15% annualized returns over a three-year period. I have been interviewing your dad for years, and when I think of the Bill Miller Three strategy and approach, I really think of uh, of capital appreciation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, here you are, Bill Miller Four, and your specialty is is the compounding power of both capital appreciation and income. So, what convinced you that that is a good approach to take?
1: I joined the firm um, in two thousand eight out of business school. And I don't think when I joined my dad's firm, I came in thinking I need to invest in some income-generating securities. Um, it, what happened was we started the strategy, or I should say my dad had the idea to start the strategy back in the depths of the financial crisis shortly after I joined, simply because we looked around at the portfolios and you know, observed that uh, a lot of the equities we owned had debt in their capital structures that was priced to yield um, you know, twenty percent. And so, if you bought these, bought these uh, debt instruments and held them to maturity, you are going to earn a rate of return of twenty percent per year. And so, that looked like a really interesting strategy to start to him. And you know, at the time, I didn't really have the wherewithal to know what was going on. But he said, "Hey, let's work on this strategy together and and uh, see what happens." It's interesting because finance is, I don't think, the kind of industry where you can just jump in and say i'm going to do x and it's going to be awesome. So for it's a very much an apprenticeship type model so i kind of had to learn from him how to manage money, how to think about the world and you kind of try and figure out where you have a marginal advantage or a, a an edge and so if you find those marginal edges you want to push them and magnify them. And so no one at the time around the uh the group was really looking at income generating stuff in mm-hmm. the, in our whole team and so it was kind of a space for me to find a niche and and, um, get moving.
0: And also, you have a a specialty in high yield. So that was of interest to you anyhow?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, when you think about the kind of securities my dad has historically bought, I always refer to them as having a wide cone of uncertainty around the future outcomes. The stuff that I just tend to gravitate towards, and we have very different personalities, is stuff that's paying cash today. And what's it Doing for me right now, whereas a lot of the things he invests in is what could this be worth in twenty years, and it could be a hundred bagger or a thousand bagger. So I think a lot of the stuff in this income strategy has a much uh, tighter cone of uncertainty around what it might be worth, and I just I tended to gravitate towards that and find it really interesting.
0: So that's it. What is interesting to me as well is that the income strategy came out of a an unusual situation, which was the depth, this financial crisis, the depths of the financial crisis. Define how it's kind of evolved since then. So to define what the, you know, Miller income strategy means to us.
1: Yeah, the, it's evolved a little bit. But if you think about the thought process um, that founded the strategy, the idea was, here's a basket of securities that um, are higher up in the capital structure than equities, so theoretically safer but they're also priced to produce a very nice rate of return. And even if things didn't recover in 2009 or 2010, the thought process was, okay, well, we'll sit around and we'll clip a very nice income stream while we wait for things to recover and then potentially earn some return on top of that. And that's still kind of the thought process today is we're we're looking around the world and uh, all up and down capital structures for securities that are kicking off a high level of yield, cash Mm -hmm. yield, but also that we think are undervalued. So when we put the portfolio together, every single name we look at is done on a name-by-name, fundamental value, bottoms-up basis. So we're not saying our view of the world is X and therefore we want to buy securities that kind of match that view. We're kind of looking at everything through screens, all kinds of systematic processes, and then Trying to figure out from there what might be undervalued, and then concentrate within those securities that we think are the most that present the best risk-adjusted returns.
0: So it's uh, interesting that that Morningstar and, and you're in the the income the Miller Income Fund is in the top one percent of your uh, category, the Morningstar category, which uh, is their 70 to 85 percent equity allocation category. Um, and you know, you've know you got a three-year re- annualized return of around 15%, uh, yet your internal benchmark is a high-yield index. Why did you choose the high-yield index as your benchmark, and basically kind of what's your performance objective long-term for the income strategy?
1: Yes, we chose the high-yield index uh, for a couple of reasons. First, uh, it's a simple, very widely available, well-known index. So you need some kind of benchmark just for accountability reasons. Um, but on top of that, there's a variety of benchmarks you could choose. You could choose the S&P 500, and aggregate um, uh, bond aggregate index. But when we looked through and thought about what the strategy is trying to accomplish, the high yield index was really the only readily available, well-known benchmark uh, within which we could theoretically buy all of those securities. But as I mentioned, the idea is a high level of income with the potential for capital appreciation on top of that income. Most of the names in the S&P 500 or other benchmarks don't fit that mandate. So we had to pick something that was, you know, widely available, and recognized where we could actually own every single security in there.
0: Right. It's it's also different uh, that your emphasis on high yield in that there are, you know, many income strategies, for instance, uh, will say avoid, we're going to avoid high yield securities, number one. And when I'm talking about high yield securities, I'm talking specifically about stocks because if it's a high, the you know, among the highest yielding stocks, that means that The stock's probably under pressure for some reason, or the payout ratio is really high, and that means that the management is not doing proper capital uh, investment uh, back into the company. Um, Or, you know, there's some other problem associated with it. It's an unsustainable level, whatever. But uh, you have some interesting research that you published on your Miller Value Partners uh, website about the fact that high-yielding securities actually, their performance – is pretty good over the long-term. Can you explain what that research is and uh, and, and maybe have help us rethink our attitudes towards high-yield securities?
1: <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, so the more work we ended up doing on higher-yielding securities after we launched the strategy, uh, the better we liked it for the risk-adjusted returns aspect. And so that we happened upon a study that showed that if you had just purchased every single year, the top 30% of the stock market just ranked by dividend yield and rebalanced once per year. This is going back to the 1920s all the way through a a year or two ago. You would have outperformed the equity market by, I think, 130 basis points per year Wow! with much lower volatility than the market. So that's, again, a very nice risk-adjusted return. And I think there are a few reasons for that and there are hypotheses First is the value effect. So high-yield securities generally tend to have a low price-to-earnings ratio, as you just pointed out. Um, And the value effect is a very uh, well-known way to generate returns. So I think that's part of it. I also think there's an aspect to it whereby management teams have a much higher level of capital discipline if they're paying out a high level of their cash flow to shareholders. So there's kind of this implicit agreement that, hey, these cash flows are yours, and if we want to start a new business or reinvest, we actually have to go to the equity market or some of the debt market and validate those plans with someone else. So I think there's a, an element of capital discipline there for management teams. And then finally, I think, um, I, I have not seen a lot of research on this, but it seems to me that there is a very positive tailwind from carry. So if a security is going to be paying you a dividend every single quarter, that gets priced into the stock. And there's kind of this, this cash flow carry element to it. And so high-yield bonds, at least as an asset class, have historically returned roughly what equities have, but on a, a much better risk-adjusted or volatility-adjusted basis. And I think that's just because of the carry aspect, where you get the cash flow behind you at all times.
0: Just for our audience's sake, and for my sake, just define what you mean by carry.
1: Um, carry is the expectation or ongoing nature of cash flows that are tied to a security whether they are contractual in the case of bonds or, I guess, expected in the case of many dividend-generating equity securities.
0: Okay. You launched the income strategy, as you said, in the depths of the financial uh, recession in 2009. And at that time, uh, the I think your asset mix was like it was 75% at least in bonds. Mm-hmm. What's the asset mix today?
1: When we launched the fund, it was 75% in preferreds and debt just because that's where we thought the best risk-adjusted returns were in that environment. I think today it's the opposite, which is why 75% of the fund today is in equity or equity-like securities.
0: How does the income strategy that you're running at, at Miller Value Partners differ from a lot of the other traditional income strategies out there? And again, when I, when I think of you know, the ones that I've been covering over the years, it's either you're in an income strategy because you want current income, or uh, there are some income strategies that focus on you know companies with growing dividends. And then there are others that are focusing on total return. I mean, wh- how do you consider yourselves to be different?
1: I think the unconstrained nature of the strategy is different from most things out there. Most investment, quote-unquote, products are slotted into some kind of style box or uh, – Narrow set of objectives, right? Whereas this strategy is we can go anywhere in the capital structure, anywhere in the world, and find what we think are the best risk adjusted uh, income streams mm-hmm. and put them together in a portfolio. I think, and I also think that's really important this unconstrained nature, just because the more constraints you put on an optimization problem and creating a, a portfolio is an optimization problem, the less likely you are to get a good result. So presuming we don't mess things up, that unconstrained aspect, I think, is very, very important.
0: It's a concentrated portfolio, about 30 to 60 holdings, Yes. uh, basically. So what does it take to get into the portfolio, to take us a little bit through the process?
1: Well, it has to be something that is, generally speaking, better than what's already in there. So
0: Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. So are you, are you pretty much fully invested all, at all we're, times?
1: We're always fully invested. Always fully invested. And every single day we go and look at the changing prices on the screen and figure out where there may be opportunity. And anytime we find something that looks interesting, there's always a couple questions. Number one, is this better than everything else out there that's like it? And number two, is it better than what's already in the portfolio? And so it has to pass those two tests to, to be considered.
0: And, and the turnover is about what? I mean, how long do you typically hold a security?
1: It's going to vary by uh, environment. So a more volatile environment will probably mean more turnover just because it means prices and opportunities are changing more quickly. But um, I think right now the turnover has been about 35 to 40%, so two and a half years-ish mm-hmm. for an average holding.
0: Right. And, um, and give us some examples that are in the portfolio now that have obviously have made the cut. Um, and that exemplify your approach?
1: Sure. One of our biggest positions right now is in the alternative asset management names. Um, Apollo Global,
0: Private equity firm. Mm -hmm. The
1: private equity firm. So the actual manager, we're not putting money into the funds. Right. We are investing alongside the managers in their asset management business. These are... These are really interesting opportunities, in my opinion, for a couple of reasons. Number one, Wall Street and uh, investors in general don't like uncertainty. And it's very, very hard for an investor to know when Apollo is going to sell something from one of its funds. Um, It's going to depend on market conditions. It's going to depend on all kinds of things that are impossible to predict. So Wall Street doesn't like that. Investors also a lot of times don't like the K-1, the partnership aspect, because the taxation is challenging. So that turns off a huge portion of institutional investors, which means that the stocks, a lot of people aren't paying attention. Is enough attention to these names. That's okay with us because they're one part of our portfolio. So we don't care if they don't make money this quarter. We don't care if they don't make money next quarter. We just know that if you take a long-term approach and figure out how much, what types of returns can these managers actually generate, over a longer period of time, that's much easier to predict than what they're going to do this quarter. And if we can predict that and figure out how much cash flows they're going to kick off in the aggregate, it's very clear to us that these names trade at, you know, in a lot of cases, mid to high single digit multiples of earnings power. And that's really interesting because these companies don't need any more money to make more money right? One of their salespeople goes out and raises $100 million. They don't need any more money to, to invest in a new widget factory to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's a capital light business, which generally deserves a much higher multiple than the market. And now historically, these names have actually outperformed, their funds have outperformed the market for a variety of reasons. Number one, they use leverage. Number two, they take an active approach and fix companies. And so their earnings power sh- should and has been growing faster than the market's, They traded a big discount to the market. And the really interesting thing about them is, as I pointed out, there's no um, capital intensity, meaning they don't have to reinvest their earnings back into the business, Mm -hmm. which means they're going to pay it all out to us as shareholders via the dividend.
0: And they do. They've got very high dividends, right?
1: Very high dividend yields. So the the companies generally make money, and this is very simplistic, but in two ways. One is as a share of assets under management. Those are called management fees, fee-related earnings. They're very predictable. Apollo has already told uh, the market they're going to do $2 in fee-related earnings this year. They know what their assets are. They know what they're going to take as a share of assets for fees, and they know what the costs are associated with those those fees. So they're going to do $2 in fee-related earnings. Now, the stock trades at just over $27, so it's 13.5 times multiple on just that one very, very predictable and growing part of their earnings. Now, they're also going to sell things in their portfolios, and they're going to capture a portion of those profits that they generate for their fund investors. So generally speaking, call it 20% of the profits of, of what they make on their on the companies they buy, fix, and sell. And so that's a very powerful earning stream, even though you can't predict it. In the past, the market has not given them a lot of credit for this, because again, they can't predict it. However, you can go back and look at the multiple, I, I talked about that 13 and a half times, the fee-related portion. You can go back and look at when these stocks have traded at this low level of a multiple on just that fee stream. And um, the, the past time this happened was the early 2016, similar market environment actually. And since that time, the stock uh, more than – about tripled to, to its recent high. And so I, it would not surprise me at all to see Apollo triple over the next three years. Who knows?
0: So there are times when the market does recognize the value in these private equity firms. It exactly. just right now is not one of them, Thanks. which is why yeah, it's it's in your income strategy. That's right. Um, give 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 us another example that's not a PE firm. That again that that maybe again exemplifies your approach. That when you looked at it, you said yeah, this is the this this is the debt or the stock or whatever mm-hmm. for us.
1: Sure. Um. I, well, one of the one of the pieces I wrote was called In Search of Uncertainty Discounts. And so the, the, the private equity managers are a great example of uh, an uncertainty discount. Another uncertainty discount, which, by the way, is going to be uncorrelated with with these with this group of stocks, is a company called National Cinemedia. It's essentially the advertising network on all the movie screens in the U.S. Oh. It's hmm. the largest, largest network. It was founded by three uh, cinema companies. And so um,
0: National Cinemedia.
1: NCMI is the mm-hmm. ticker. That's right. Um, the dividend yield today on that's about 10%. And and that's on a reduced dividend, by the way, because they wanted to reinvest in digital and all these other initiatives. So it's very well covered by free cash flow. The interesting thing about it, the sort of like the private equity firms, movie attendance and the slate and how attractive it is to advertisers, very hard to predict in a given quarter. Very hard to predict. But if you look at, movie attendance over a longer period of time you know, it's declining roughly one percent a year but from a quarter to quarter basis it's all over the place and so what kind of happened for a little while there I think is it was a week's slate of movies um, attendance was down quarter over quarter and it just you string together a couple of these quarters and the market starts discounting as though that's happening a perpetuity but if you take a little bit of a longer term view of what Movie attendance is likely to be, and realize that it's a hit-driven business and uh, very hard to predict. I think that the stock, for a while, traded in the, you know the twelve to fifteen dollar range, and I think that's probably about fair value. Whereas today it trades at seven, so the market is just um, you know discounting this current trend into perpetuity. And I think if you just sit here and, and wait and clip some dividends, you'll see some gradual appreciation back to what, it, what it's worth.
0: In, in the meantime, as you said, you can clip the dividends. You know, one thinks traditionally of, uh, of income securities and an income strategy an income fund, you think of it being a more defensive type of, of fund. And um, I know that the, the income strategy suffered its worst quarter ever in its entire 10-year history uh, since the 2009 launch of the, of the strategy at your firm. Um, what happened? I mean, it, it was the fourth quarter of 2018, 17 percent decline. It's a shocker. Uh, you know what 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 went wrong and and you know what what kind of volatility do you think we should expect uh, in the income strategy going forward?
1: Yes, you correctly point out this is uh, an aggressive income strategy. This is an income strategy that plays offense and not defense. Um, but it's been our view for a while that we're going to gradually see interest rates rise slowly, slowly but surely over time. And so rising interest rates is a headwind for traditional fixed income securities because as interest rates rise, the price of the fixed income securities that you own, the price actually has to fall to compensate holders and other market participants for the higher levels of yield that you can find elsewhere in the marketplace. So our view is that, interest rates will continue to rise, albeit gradually. And what happened in the fourth quarter and what happened in the other worst quarter for the fund was heading into the beginning of 2016, when actually the 10-year rates did exactly the opposite of what we think is going to happen over the longer term, which is they just rolled over as investors started to think, oh my gosh, growth's slowing, um, the, the Fed's being too aggressive. So, A deflationary environment is exactly what this strategy cannot – will not tolerate all that well. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of what happened in this most recent quarter when the 10-year rate went from well north of 3 to 270. And so at the margin, when the market is pricing in much lower prospects for growth, that will not – at least the way the portfolio is positioned, that's not going to react well.
0: Right. How, you know, kind of dependent are you upon what the Fed does? And – you know, there there is a very healthy debate going on, as you know, among economists, uh, as to you know whether we're kind of in this this permanent uh, environment of you know of unusually low interest rates. Certainly, kind of inflation is MIA globally. Uh, So is it it possible that that the presumption that interest rates are going to rise over time, I'm sure you talk about it all the time, is it possible that that's not going to happen?
1: Well, it's a great point. I mean, people have been saying since 2008 that rates are going up and here we are with ten year at two point seven percent. So Which
0: is up. That is it's, it's higher than it yeah, was. But that's right. not a that's lot right. higher. Yeah.
1: That's right. That that well, there's a good paper by the Bank of England that showed that the uh, global risk free rate hit an eight century low, I think, in uh, twenty sixteen. And so we're we're almost double where that was, but um, we still think there's a ways to go over time. I, I think we don't necessarily need rates to go through the roof or inflation to come roaring back. Mm-hmm. We just can't have a Fed mistake. And you asked uh, how dependent are we on the Fed. I think everyone is dependent on the Fed, not raising rates too, too quickly. I think you know a lot of the well-known economists have said it better than I will, Larry Summers and others, that there's very little risk to just waiting longer and potentially seeing a tiny bit of inflation.
0: For the Fed, there's a there's a ex- lot less risk, yeah, right? Yeah, to
1: having a little bit of inflation than there is to hiking too fast and pushing the economy back into a potentially deep recession. The, the Fed calls their inflation target, quote-unquote, symmetric at 2%. 38 of the past 40 uh, readings that is their preferred measure of inflation have started with a number below 2, and here they are continuing to hike. So I think There's some confusion on the market's behalf about what's going on, but at the end of the day, you have to hope that the Fed will actually listen to the forward-looking markets more so than their models, and I think that's what we're counting on.
0: Right. So what kind of uh, volatility should we expect uh, from the income strategy?
1: It's going to be volatile. I mean, it's going to be more volatile than a bond-only strategy for sure, Um, but the idea there is to just have a consistent income stream over time.
0: Right, What role do you see the income strategy playing in a in a diversified portfolio
1: uh, well, I think it 's a really interesting portfolio to add to anyone 's portfolio just because of the the nature of the securities that are being selected and put in there it's If you just run through the holdings it 's going to be things that are not in most people 's portfolios in general, which should provide some diversification benefit
0: when I mentioned having uh you know a, a tough quarter, everyone has tough quarters now and again. <laughs> Uh, you're no exception. But you had some interesting research on your website uh, that uh, that you, you refer to as no pain, uh, no gain. So just tell us about that research, about these periods of underperformance and how they are uh, to be expected, and put them into context.
1: Yeah, there's a fabulous piece on the Alpha Architect uh, blog that we read, and it was called something like, Even God Would Be Fired as an Active Investor. And so they went back and looked and said, "Okay, God has perfect foresight. He's going to only buy the stocks, the top 10% of the market, um, that will do the best over the next five years. And he's just going to sit there and hold it. Let's see what returns are generated. And so obviously, he he does this every single year, rebalances once only every five years because he's looking on a five-year basis. And the annualized returns over a very long period of time were quite stellar, 30% a year versus the market at 9 or 10. But the reality is there were still huge drawdowns even, um, market, even declines. With market declines. Market right. declines. And, and in a lot of cases, much larger declines in his portfolio than even in the market. And so the idea here is that there is there has to be a tolerance for underperformance in order to achieve outperformance over the long term. Um, they then went and said, OK, well, is that really the case? Maybe he could hedge against these uh, kind of declines. If he shorts the ones that are going to do the worst, the the bottom decile of performance over the next five years, short those against the ones that are going to do the best, and that could theoretically hedge out some of the volatility. It doesn't hedge out the volatility. It increased the returns from 30% a year to 50% a year, but the drawdowns were at least as big and just as violent and all, all over the place. So the idea is you have to be able to tolerate some periods of underperformance if you actually want to outperform over the long term.
0: So the markets even trip up God. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> let, let, let's talk about the, the, the bigger issue uh, that investors are talking about, uh, and, and that is the active versus passive approach. At Miller, Miller Value Partners, you are very actively uh, engaged uh, in security selection and investment strategy. Uh, there's a lot of competition from um, the more passive approaches, which have worked quite well over the last you know decade in this bull market. So how do you you know, respond uh, to those who say, why don't I just get a, a high-yield ETF?
1: Well, I think the passive trend is real and for good reason. Um, active managers as a group have failed to outperform their indexes. And that's – I mean mathematically that's going to continue <laughs> because – Active managers as a group are essentially, well, plus the passive guys, but they are, they are the market. And so right. you take the market and you deduct fees and you're, you're going to be at a return lower than the market. But I think it's important to note a couple things. Um, one, passive strategies don't actually give you the index's return. They give you the index's return less fees. And so for high yield, actually, the high yield index is not an investable index. And so if you look at the returns to the high yield ETFs that are supposed to track those indexes, they've historically been much lower than the unmanaged, quote unquote, and uninvestable index just because you have to pay some sort of premium for that daily liquidity that you get in the ETF, and it's in the form of lower returns than the actual benchmark. So you're not always going to get the, the benchmark returns, and some of the comparisons are not always fair. Um, with that said, again, I think that the shift to passive is going to continue. Um, It's just basic math. And so Mm -hmm. but despite that, I think you still there is still a room for active managers. And there's a couple things you want to look for uh, when you hire an active manager. Aside from the obvious things such as low fees or reasonable fees and low turnover, I think the most important thing is something I touched on earlier, which is an an unconstrained approach in that. if you look at the way most institutional money management firms are set up or strategies are set up, they're set up in a way that kind of boxes the managers in in a big way. So they say you can't deviate from the index. You you can only deviate from the index in certain ways. You can't uh, overweight certain names too much. You can't underweight certain indices too much because they don't want to – it's a business concern, frankly, for a lot of these firms. And if you if you take a big swing and a a big active bet against the index and you miss, well, you're going to get fired and, you know, you paid a lot less money. So it's, it's a survival mechanism that a lot of people have developed, but unfortunately it's uh, also created a huge headwind for them. Um, So having an unconstrained approach where you can actually take real bets uh, relative to the index is very important. And the academic research shows that funds that have what's called a high active, active share, share mm-hmm. are much more likely to outperform, and so having that unconstrained approach is immensely important. In right.
0: My opinion. In, in fact, a high active share means that you're not co- uh, correlated with the market, and uh, and if in the interest of diversity you don't want to be, and therefore you're you're not an index hugger, and you're doing something that's very different uh, than what an index would do. Uh, let me ask you also about, you know, how does your approach differ from your dad's? I have to ask you that. But
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think we're kind of taking the same approach, which is we we're always trying to find the securities within our universe that trade at the biggest discount to their intrinsic value, and. If you look in his portfolio, I mentioned, I think, earlier, he's investing in things that have what I call a huge cone of uncertainty. So there's names in his portfolio that could be worth zero or they could be worth a 1,000. There's nothing really in this portfolio that has that kind of potential uh, skew. That means that sometimes we may have higher turnover than uh, his capital appreciation strategies just because there's a much tighter band in terms of what we think things are worth. Mm-hmm. And prices move around. But uh, again, it's all about trying to find the things with the best risk adjusted returns and trade at the biggest discounts of their intrinsic value. It's just that the, what we're buying in this strategy has an income component to it, whereas the stuff that are in the capital appreciation strategies may not.
0: What's the opportunity set look like when you are looking out in the market today? I,
1: actually, I think we're finding a lot of opportunities. In, I'd say our biggest challenge today is funding them. So we're fortunate in that the clients have been very supportive and have continued to put money in actually through some of the challenges in the last quarter. But we're having no shortage of, of opportunities. And it's really interesting if you just look at the the uh, market constituents out there, most of the trading that occurs in a given day has absolutely no opinion on the fundamental value of a stock. So there's very few fundamental stock pickers out there right now and I feel like we are seeing a lot of stuff that's falling through the cracks whether it's these alternative asset managers or some names abroad we like there's a lot of interesting things out there so we're really having no uh, shortage of opportunity
0: So Bill Miller IV thank you so much for joining us on Wealth Track for the first time we really appreciate you being with us
1: and thank you for having me
0: For more information about the research we referred to from Miller Value Partners and to listen to other WealthTrack podcasts, go to our website, WealthTrack.com. Thanks for joining us and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.